Listen as Drs. Daniel Hart from Varts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry in London and Maria Elisa Mancuso from the Angelo Bianchi Bonomi Hemophilia and Thrombosis Center in Milan discuss gene therapy for hemophilia A and B compared to available treatments. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy in hemophilia. Visit www.genetherapy.ist.org for more information. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining this ISTH Gene Therapy podcast series. This uh, conversation is going to be uh, exploring the issues around gene therapy options compared to available treatments in haemophilia A and B. I hope we you know, have the opportunity just to discuss broadly around these issues, recognizing that uh, although gene therapy is still in trial, kind of late phase trial, there's an anticipation that the completion of those and, and uh, the possibility of regulatory approval for haemophilia B and A in the next 12-24 months uh, introduces the, I suppose, the, the issues and, and challenges of, of how we maybe convert from trial to service provision of this therapeutic um, alongside the many of what we have already in haemophilia A and B. Um, I suppose just to kick off, t- to ask you, even before the gene therapy emerges from trial, um, given the changes in recent years with extended half-life and in the haemophilia A setting with a non-factor therapeutic in emosuzumab, h- how have you found those conversations about that expansion of options for patients in clinic um, for you and your Italian clinics? Uh, hi, Dan. Thank you for being here uh, with me today. Really interesting topic. You know, we are facing, I think, the most exciting era in uh, treatment in hemophilia, I think, after uh, decades, because I think that the same enthusiasm was present when, uh, you know, our predecessors uh, had the opportunity to clone the, the genes of factor 8, factor 9. For some years, we had, let's say, we just... Uh, had good therapy, but nothing really exciting. And nowadays, as you mentioned, we have so many options for for our patients. Indeed, you know, uh, now the landscape is so rich and uh, so also full of uh, innovation that the conversation, at least with patients, becomes always more and more interesting. Also because you know that our patients are pretty much expert patients. So they would like to know how we are proceeding and which are the benefits, the pros and cons of everything you mentioned. Indeed, I have to say that looking at gene therapy, at least in my in my view and also listening to a conversation between other colleagues, uh, has always like uh, the, the idea that the final objective is to cure the disease. And so they are looking at that as, the, let's say, the final goal, which is restoring completely the production of either factor 8, factor 9. And in this light, of course, looking at what we have in our hands in terms of hemostatic agents able to confer very good protection to our patients, it's difficult to understand which is the place or which will be the place uh, in, in, in the real uh, practice, uh, if gene therapy comes uh, uh, so early, also because there are many limitations that still are there and we need to understand. I have to say that uh, extended life already uh, changed a lot 
life of our patient. I mean, they experience more and more how they can have a, a normal lifestyle as compared with their peers. And, uh, and I think another big step forward already has been done with the non-replacement therapy available. And I do think that this will provide further uh, improvement. But, you know, maybe you in the UK, you have, uh, let's say, also due to the fact that some clinical trials just uh, started in UK, maybe you have a different perspective or your approach is very interesting. I mean, also how you... Uh, you did your process to consent patients for gene therapy. Uh, I read something about that. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. I think you're right. And I think what's fascinating, having had some of the clinical trials, I suppose from the early UCL St. Jude study um, at, at our neighbouring institution, the Royal Free, um, and then some of the A and B studies in my own institution and, and others in the UK, I suppose we've seen those early adopter um, patients who've been very keen to get to gene therapy. Um, and I think some of the consenting that you allude to in those early adopters becomes quite challenging because of that enthusiasm to proceed. And, and maybe just as both reflect on our responsibilities around consent, um, recognizing there are these other available treatments. And it's it's not maybe like some of the other early gene therapies that are becoming available often in the pediatric setting, say for otherwise fairly catastrophic neurological conditions, you know, spinal muscular atrophy, for, for example, where there isn't other treatment. I mean, do, do you think, you know, if, if, if we exclude the early adopters who've, who've gone into trial, that with what we've got in front of us, that, that the consenting process almost has to talk patients out of gene therapy to see how how committed they are to it, given the, the commitment downstream after you've infused, not only can you not get it out again, and that, I think from my perspective as a trialist has been the big difference between this and other therapies is once it's in, it's in. Um, and then that micromanagement in the early weeks and months, although it's one and done, it doesn't mean it's a, it, it's one and never see you again. It's one and see you a lot. It's, so it, it's a curious kind of mixed message, isn't it? Very convenient up front, but actually very inconvenient in terms of the management and hopefully then longer term, once you're able to relax that surveillance, it, you know, it, it becomes much easier for patients released, hopefully from, from prophylaxis, but I suppose also not guaranteed. And that's one of the challenges, isn't it, of this variability of expression. We can't predict who's going to do well and who isn't going to do well with, with gene therapy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you touched many points that makes everything a little bit difficult, but also, you know, challenging and in the same way, uh, also um, exciting. I mean, of course, you have to be, I think that in the case of gene therapy, we have to be sure that our patients understand well what we are talking about, because it varies with the concentrate, factor eight, factor nine concentrate, either uh, standard of life or extended of life. You know, we were somehow explaining how a molecule, how a drug is uh, functioning in their body. But in a way, up to now, we always had this uh, conclusion. If, the, if it doesn't work, you just stop, you will be washed out, and you start with something new. With gene therapy, it's pretty much different. Also because I have to admit that still we have many unknowns around the mechanism of action and how it will work on, the, on long term. Uh, and I think this is a big difference uh, between gene therapy and other treatments available. Also, the one with very long half-life, like emicizumab, like other non-replacement therapy, still we are able somehow to control 
for some effect, some pharmacodynamic effect. On the other side, gene therapy is something that involves more thoroughly uh, life of patients and also I would say will impact also on our role as physicians because you said well, I mean, we will do one, the injection, but then we have to follow patients in a very different way as we were used to do with other treatments. On the other side, you know, also having a good conversation with patients will be also a way let's say, to make an agreement, which is always very important in the relationship between physician and patient, to let them understand that we are still trying to investigate some aspects. Of course, you know, if I think about conversation between colleagues, but also with patients, still we are more talking about what we don't know. So how long it will uh, stay there, the effect of such uh, injection? And uh, it will be harmful in the future. Uh, or also, you know, what about uh, children? Still, gene therapy is not available for pediatric population, which should be the, the uh, ideal target for something that restores the synthesis of the protein. Uh, what about patients with inhibitors? Uh, still, you know, if we go more granular and we have such conversation, we will understand that we have to understand more and more. On the other side, I have to say, that if you look at the, the data coming from the trial, especially, you know, with, with the phase 3 trial and in hemophilia B, of course, it's, it's really reassuring that we can have synthesis of those proteins with no major short-term uh, side effects in the end. So, and, you know, if you, if you have a global view, if, you, if you, you consider that not all countries are the same, have the same resources or the same possibilities, of course, these gene therapy sits beside different alternatives and could be good in certain uh, settings. Yeah, and I think that global view is so crucial for haemophilia, isn't it? Recognizing that, that you know the the step change in care in in places like China, like Southeast Asia. Latin American and African continent, you know, a lot of really good work going on from patient organizations and, and, and clinical groups supported by the World Federation of Haemophilia and, and other advocacy groups. Um, and you say it's almost like mobile phones, isn't it, that people sometimes suggest that gene therapy may be that jump that you can go straight to it, albeit that I think that the reality of, of any new expensive therapeutic is that it will come into well-resourced healthcare systems first. But I mean, my reflection would be, we're in a way, so lucky that there is then this this menu that predates gene therapy, that we're, it's not the first efficacious treatment. It may be the perfect endpoint of curative treatment that unshackles someone from their factor prophylaxis. But I suppose for that global community that the standard half-lives, whether plasma-drived or recombinant, still work very well in both prophylaxis and, and rescue trauma or surgery environments, the EHLs, you know, becoming very competitive, and then the non-factors, uh, one already to market and others possibly coming to market, we, we wait and see. I think it does leave the community with a, a rich kind of menu, but I suppose as clinicians, it puts the pressure on us to be able to articulate what the pros and cons are for each and work with our patient groups to make sure we feel they're, they're confident about those, those decisions too, do you think? Yeah, I, I think, you know, as a, you know, Let's say a final consideration, I would say that uh, this is really exciting uh, to have such uh, multiple, let's say, uh, umbrella 
of uh, uh, therapeutic uh, weapon that we have for hemophilia. So I would see gene therapy as something that will come and sit beside all other weapons that we have, uh, including standard of life, extended of life, non-replacement therapy, and also taking into account that we learned that treatment individualization is a good way to go. So uh, the, the good is that we can offer to different patients different approaches to meet the ultimate goal, which is uh, no bleeds, uh, good joint health, normal life. Uh, so the consideration is that we, we will use and we will be able to use all these uh, therapies in a good way. Uh, and so there is no, no one superior to other, but there is one therapy good for each individual. I, I, I would leave you with this consideration. Yeah. That's wonderful. F finding the right treatment for the right person at the right time of their life, I, I think, exactly. encapsulates that w wonderfully. Elisa, thank you so much for your time today in this short podcast, just being able to explore that. I, I, it's a lovely conversation to, to be able to explore with you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure. Earn your CME credit by clicking the link for credit. Check back for more podcasts on gene therapy and hemophilia. Additional education is available on www.genetherapy.ist.org, an educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia.